Welcome to another episode of The Cubic Report. Today, my guest is Melvin Rhodes, who has been on this podcast several times before. We like to cover history and news, and Melvin is an expert, and our audience appreciates his analysis. Melvin is an expert particularly on history of the United Kingdom, his history and news. He is British. He was born in England. He has written countless knowledgeable articles for various publications in discussing history and prophecy. Also, Melvin maintains a well-written and popular blog called Mel's Place, and we will feature the location for it in the notes that accompany this podcast. So welcome to our podcast, Melvin. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, it's really good to have you here. We really have appreciated your being here. The reason that I wanted to talk to you this time is that a lot of history has taken place in the United Kingdom. Now, our first podcast was celebrating the Queen Elizabeth's 70th platinum anniversary of her reign as queen. She is the longest reigning monarch in, in England. And then shortly thereafter, there was a new prime minister, and then the Queen died. There have been other changes that have taken place where the shortest reign of a prime minister, a woman, Liz Truss, and we had the longest reign of the Queen, Elizabeth, which spanned, and the two of them intersected. The two of them were concurrent with one another. So it was really quite, quite an event. We've had change in leadership from Theresa May to Boris Johnson to Liz Truss, and now to Rishi Sunak. There's just been a lot of changes that have taken place, <laughs> and it's been somewhat bewildering. But anyway, Melvin, it's really good to have you here and be able to talk to us today. Thank you. So what do you make of what's happening in the United Kingdom? I know that we like to talk about history and about events in the world, and of course there are so many different kinds of events that are taking place. And right now we have everything from the uh, possibility, even from nuclear exchanges, tactical whatever, and then we have poverty at the same time, we have history all intersecting, we have so many things. And over the years as I've read your material, I've always felt like you've given context to it. What can, what can you make of this? Let's kind of start our discussion here. Of what do you make of what's going on? Well, they've had a very chaotic period. I hope now uh, that Rishi Sunak has been appointed as prime minister, that things will settle down. Uh, he's only got two years to go until the next election, a general election. And that's when probably the Labour Party will win because the Conservatives have made such a mess during the last three years. Rishi Sunak is as good uh, a man as anybody else in the cabinet. I hope he does a good job, but that remains to be seen. He has a lot of challenges because the country uh, basically is broke. The ordinary people cannot pay their utility bills because uh, interest rates have gone so high. And at the same time, the government needs to borrow a lot of money to pay for everything that they spent during COVID. And when the government borrows that money, it's got to be paid back. So things are not looking good for them over the next few years. Melvin, you sound like you're talking about the United States. <laughs> well, I was going to add, I was going to add, really, it's the same problems that we've got. Only here in the U.S., we don't feel the need to balance the books 
as much as they do in Britain. And the reason for that is because the dollar is the reserve currency in the world. As long as people will, say, will take dollars as payment for things, we're okay. We don't have to make sure that we balance everything. But things are getting difficult here now, and it's, uh, it's the same problem as they have in the United Kingdom. Well, with modern monetary theory, in the United States speaks to printing as much money as you want because deficits don't matter. Uh, it seems like we're kind of on a treadmill going nowhere, and it's going to happen. Something's going to crash someday. And uh, well, what I feel about the United Kingdom is that it's kind of tailing with the United States because I do I do watch Sky News uh, from the United Kingdom uh, all three four times a week and. Uh, try to kind of absorb some of the feeling there. And it's just about as grim as it is in the, in the United States uh, about everything with inflation. Of course, that, that's the same thing over here. But it just seems to be more critical there than it is over here. Uh, yes, although that could change. I mean, for example, I read this morning, and I don't remember who said this, but there was a warning that Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid are all going to go bust the way things are. And if that happened, of course, the whole country would collapse. And that's possible. Again, I don't remember who said that this morning, but it was certainly uh, a serious warning. In England, they've got to pay uh, pensions out as well as, uh, you know, paying for everything else. They've got uh, defense, of course. And of course, they committed in, on defense to spend 3% a year to please the US. They've also got um, the National Health Service to pay for. I, I don't see how they can do it. They haven't got the money. Well, that's, that's the whole thing. And uh, what about Rishi? Do you think that uh, he will bring some sense to it? He was kind of the national treasurer, wasn't he, uh, as his uh, role beforehand? Well, he's more sensible than Liz Truss was. So I think we can rely on him when it comes to money. Although he's not the guy who looks after the money. Jeremy Hunt is that guy. Mm -hmm. And we've no idea what he's like. It remains to be seen. So, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. But like I said, there's only two years left until the election. Well, British politics or British government is just very interesting. I've learned a lot about it just seeing what's happening with all the changes that have taken place. You know, how it works, how one party is in power, but they can change their leader. Uh, that. That's very interesting, so different from the United States. But interesting thing about Rishi Sunak is this, and this is one thing I just wanted to cover a little bit with you. He is Hindu. I didn't really focus on that. You know, I look upon leaders, you know, of different race and color and creed uh, of, well, that's just the way they are. They are still uh, of the country that they, they live in. But in his inauguration or whatever they call that, process. He wanted to be identified as Hindu, which I thought was very interesting. And also, he did not want to have a Bible, which I understand because he is Hindu. He wanted to have the Hindu uh, writings, whatever, that he would lay his hand on. And he wanted to be uh, identified that way. Uh, I know that I have gone to Ukraine, and I have identified myself as Ukrainian, because I was from Ukraine, Ukrainian parents. And they told me, no, you're not Ukrainian. You are an American. You are an American of Ukrainian descent. 
That is your country. That is your identity. I feel like it's significant that Rishi wants to be identified as Hindu in that he's made public. Any comment about that? My initial comment would be that this is the first time that Britain has been led by somebody who takes his religion seriously for a very long time. I can't remember who the last prime minister was who was uh, deeply religious. But Rishi Sunak is deeply religious. He really believes in Hinduism and keeps all the festivals and everything. I don't know if that will be a factor in his premiership, but it is good to see a prime minister who takes his religion seriously. Well, he does seem like a decent person. Uh, yes. But when, when he speaks, he's very sensible. In, in no way am I deprecating you know, his character because I really do like him. In fact, uh, between uh, Liz Truss and him, when they were debating, and I just thought, well, who do I like better? It kind of tilted towards Liz Truss. She was, I, I just liked the way she, she talked. But when Rishi Sunak uh, replaced her, I was happy about that too because he's a decent person or appears to be. Yes, I think so. He seems to be happily married. His children, his children are well-behaved. In fact, I'll tell you a story here. I was in India some years ago. An Indian taxi driver cornered me, so to speak, in Delhi, and he just lectured me. We were stuck in a traffic jam, and he just lectured me. He said, uh, no Indian man would leave his wife and children. So their commitment to the family and to family values is probably second to none, and I attribute the success of the Indian people around the world who've gotten into high positions. I think that success is due to the fact that uh, the men do take their marriages and their vows seriously. And I think that Rishi Sunak will. Mm -hmm. uh, it won't be long before Rishi Sunak is out of office. I mean, it might be a few years, but it won't be long. And there'll be another prime minister who doesn't really have any religious convictions. Mm -hmm. Bo Boris Johnson converted to Catholicism. I don't know why, but before he married the woman he's married to now, he had two wives. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't know how in the Catholic Church he was able to have three wives. Well, I, as you could be a different kind of Catholic. I mean, Joe Biden is a Catholic too. <laughs> And That's his, true. You know, his <laughs> views regarding abortion and everything are very incompatible with what the Catholic Church teaches. Well, I think England was safe there because abortion is not an issue. Rishi Sunak's wife, I understand, is the daughter of an Indian billionaire. Right. Their personal wealth is 700 million pounds. So they're worth a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And the only scandal that there's been... Uh, involved her because she has uh, a different status in England to what he has. He is a full-born a full -born Englishman with all the rights, etc. But she has chosen to keep her residence in India, not in England. Mm -hmm. And that, ena that enables them to avoid high taxation. So some people were very upset about that. But yeah. I really think it's a non-issue. How many times have you been to India? Just the once. Just the once. Yeah. Yeah. I, I went one time as well in 2018, and my eyes were opened. I went there after the Feast of Tabernacles and visited, uh, well, Sri Lanka, and then uh, Andhra Pradesh, uh, three different groups of people there, and then up in Mizoram, which is 
uh, east of Calcutta. When we were there, there was all kinds of Indian Indian festivals of some sort. And it was just, uh, if anything, I could say, very colorful. <laughs> yeah, right. I really enjoyed India. Mm. It, it has a different feel to Africa. In Africa, it's kind of rather depressing and all the poverty that you see. But in India, it's quite the opposite. It's uh, people are rushing around because they're trying to make money and everybody's, everybody's uh, doing quite, quite well. You know, they're all trading, basically. Well, I found the Indian people to be very, very diverse from uh, Christians, and there are many, many Christian Indians, not many percentage-wise, but there's just so many people, period, that there's a huge, <clears throat> huge number of people. Andhra Pradesh, I believe they had something like 45,000 uh, pastors or 45,000 churches. It was just one of the states of uh, of. Uh, of India, mm, but that was just that was very interesting. And then also they had the area of Mizoram, uh, which was east of Calcutta, a totally different world. The people were more like the Nepalese or Vietnamese, mm -hmm. and and uh, that is an area which is very interesting as far as just the British connection with it. It was an area that was evangelized by British missionaries in the eighteen. 80s, 1890s or so, the area is about 85 to 90 percent Christian. And there's, when you go there, uh, it's just an entirely different world. The people don't look Indian, the, the people uh, have the religions are, are Christian. And yet, when you talk to them, you kind of wonder if they're Indian. And they say, oh, no, we're, we're Indian, you know, we're Indian, you know, they, they were very much that way. And, you know, we have worked with churches, uh, partner churches, uh, right now with the United Church of God. Uh, with the people there and have excellent relationships mind to mind. But so many people are Hindu, which is the uh, religion of Rishi. Uh, well, Rishi has had the religious beliefs all of his life. I mean, he was born in 1972 in Southampton, which is a city on the south coast of England. So that makes him 42. He's always lived in England. He went to a very expensive private school during his teenage years and he had you know many advantages he worked in high finance in his 20s and 30s and then eventually found his way into politics i believe he's only been in politics for the last six years whereas most of the others who have been <coughs> involved in all the infighting that's gone on during the last few months many of them have been around for a lot longer and frankly, probably England is relieved to see the back of them. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm just uh, amazed as to how cruel the people sound to one another. Uh, well, of course, they sound that way too here. And of course, we're uh, in the last few days before the midterm elections here, where people just say any old thing about mm -hmm. one another, and people kind of expect that, and and uh, they throw out throw any decency out window. But anyway, it's uh, interesting to see how they talk. And Rishi does not follow that pattern of having that type of vituperative ex exclamation about people. Well, he did very well in Prime Minister's Question Times, Question Time, when I saw him last week. I thought he handled himself well. And, you know, that's kind of a rough and tumble in there. Uh, if you haven't seen Prime Minister's Question Time, uh, it's on on a Wednesday as soon as you get up in the morning, turn the TV on to Sky News, okay. and you'll see it broadcast live. 
and he handled himself very well. Okay, well, that's one thing I haven't done. I'd like to see that. Is it sort of like the House of Parliament where they all kind of yay, yay, yay talk? or? Yeah, it's the House of Commons. Oh, okay. And so it's one of the Houses of Parliament, and the Prime Minister, by tradition, answers any question that's put to him on Wednesdays. And so there's a lot of shouting and screaming. <laughs> heckling, too? Oh, heckling, yeah, all the time. <laughs> yes. I'm so glad I never have had to deal with that kind of heckling, you know, but it's uh, particular business have to have a thicker skin. Well, the amazing thing is, it is said that people can go at it for an hour or more, yelling and screaming at each other, and when it's over, they're the best of friends. Well, that's what I heard about the British, you know, they go out for a drink afterwards. After that's right. I'll call each other scumbag, you know, <laughs> in meetings. I don't know whether Hindus are allowed to drink. I'm not sure. No, he, he, no that's one thing that uh, was stated about him, that he does not, does, not, does not drink at all, no alcohol. Well, he certainly doesn't eat too much. I mean, you, can, you look at the, uh, the parliamentarians, you know, many of them have weight problems, mm-hmm. but the prime minister doesn't. I mean, Boris Johnson, his predecessor, did, uh, but this prime minister doesn't. Mm-hmm. So he's really fit and healthy to turn his attention to all the politics. Well, being 42 years old, I mean, he's really in the prime of life and has wisdom even beyond beyond his years, probably due to uh, a, a discipline in how he, he was uh, reared and, and values, even though the religion is not ours, uh, he followed yeah. the, the dictates of his faith. Keep in mind, too, he's 42, like you said. He could actually be in power for the next 30 years. You mean if the... Conservatives win the general election? If they win the general election, he will be back in for five years. So that'll be seven. And then he could win again and be in for another five. That's 12. Mm-hmm. And he's so young that he could go on for, for a long time. Well, it's possible. You know, people uh, are kind of develop a reputation and people, as they look around, say, well, who do we want to replace him? And there's no obvious person. So we'll just see how... Uh, Rishi does. How do you feel? Uh, maybe you can comment about something that you have written in your column this week, uh, because your column was about Rishi. Can you comment about your column? Uh, yes, I can. I mean, there were lots of points I brought into my column. Uh, but one thing I did point out is that whereas Indians have been very successful in many different countries around the world, I mean, in this country, Kamala Harris is Indian. You know, of course, Rishi Sunak is. But the question I had is, why doesn't India allow non-Indians to become citizens? You know, if I went to India, I could spend the rest of my life there, and they would never consider me for citizenship. It says in their constitution that only people of ethnic Indian descent can be citizens. uh, You know, that is a racist remark. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they, you know, India accuses Britain of racism because they won't hand out enough visas for Indians to come to England and be uh, used in the computer field. And so they complain that England doesn't have enough positions for them, but they won't accept any English people going the other way. And this is typical of a number of countries. In Africa, a lot of countries are like that. Uh, In Ghana, where we used to live, for example, only ethnic Ghanaians can be citizens. In Liberia, it's the same. And Nigeria is the same. I think probably most countries in Africa have a law that says 
that that's the case. And you know, that's one thing that holds those countries back because they need uh, the talent of people uh, who would like to go and work there. Mm-hmm. But they can only stay for a few months if they go. Do you think there's a fear of person becoming a citizen and then becoming a colonialist, you know, by somehow being able to uh, manipulate the finances to their benefit? Uh, not really. I, th- I think they accept him as English. I'm just talking about some other countries that don't want to have non-ethnic people become citizens. Oh, I see. Well, I don't know. I would say it's, uh, you know, they just don't like people who are different. Mm-hmm. And they look at some countries and they see, you know, what's happened when they've tried to mix all these ethnic groups. Uh, there's a lot of violence, a lot of uh, problems. You know, they don't, they don't want that themselves. I mean, we are hardly a good example in that respect because we have a great deal of violence. And a lot of people in our big cities form gangs, which are really ethnic groups. So we're proving the case that India is probably better. Mm-hmm. Uh, a better, better example. Now, maybe straying a little bit away from the UK, it appears that Rishi Sunak will probably bring stability with the changes that they've had with Liz Truss and Boris and Theresa May, you know, before that, where it's just been really just one after another dominoes that have fallen and that Rishi will, will stay on. You think there'll be stability, perhaps a stronger position for the UK? And also, what do you think about them being outside the European Union right now with, of course, the Conservatives were pro-Brexit. What do you think that relationship will lead to? Well, that has turned rather sour because the latest opinion poll shows that 55% wanted to stay in the European Union. So that's a majority, of course. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people, a lot of people regret the decision that they made six years ago. Mm-hmm. I still think it could be the right decision. I think when you look at Europe, uh, it definitely is the right decision. But now, as regards stability, now I think a lot depends on Russia's ability to get the economy right. That depends on the treasurer. But Rishi is the prime minister, so he's kind of over the treasurer. But I think also he's got to uh, move ahead away from Brexit because Brexit's caused a lot of the animosity that's gone on for a long time. It's payback time. You know, that's why they got rid of Boris. They didn't like the fact that he supported Brexit. Liz Truss, uh, her position was uh, was different, but... Uh, they didn't like her either. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping now they put Brexit behind them. The European Union has made it clear there's no coming back. Mm-hmm. So they shouldn't bring it up. Of course, the other thing is Scotland, a lot of people in Scotland want to break away from the United Kingdom and they want to then join Europe, which will be a terrible thing. Well, that'd be like Ireland. Yes, a bit like Ireland, but in some respects worse. Mm-hmm. You, you have to go back a few hundred years to realize why that would be so bad. But because the kings of Scotland often were in alliance with France or some other European power against England. Oh. So, you know, if we go back to Scotland being in the EU, 
and Britain outside of it, uh, there are security implications there as well. Well, speaking of security implications, uh, this war in Ukraine uh, is spilling over into, in, into relationships between the European countries with the United States supplying a lot of the help for weapons in Ukraine and with possibly with the red wave, the Republicans who have been less desirous of supporting that and really calling upon Europeans. And it seems like the country that they have in mind most to pony up to the bar is uh, Germany. But where do you think that uh, this uh, relationship of NATO and Britain and connected with Europe will be with the relationship with Russia and what's going on over there? That could go either way. Uh, there are a lot of people in Germany who are not happy with the fact that they're uh, supporting the Ukrainian government and uh, they would like to end that, again, for financial reasons and also because of the energy problem, that if they got along better with Russia, they would uh, at least keep their energy for themselves. But I think Germany is reluctant right now to break away from American leadership. Uh, but I, I don't think the U.S. should count on that indefinitely. Of course, the United States has people who are opposed to the war and don't want America giving money. You know, so I'm hoping it's over f fast. Well, it's, uh, you know, we've been working with, with that, with my nonprofit and helping people and just seeing what's going on. And I talk with people there almost every day. And right now, <clears throat> with winter coming on, the Russian strategy has been, they have failed as militarily, but they're just cowardly bombing electric, electric power stations and civilian areas and uh, showing a real grotesque side of human nature. People are saying, how can people act that way? And I'm just wondering if this will build up, like you said, it could go uh, either way, whether it'll build up to a point of where we cannot tolerate this or we're going to throw Ukraine under the bus. I just don't know where it's going to go. And this winter probably will show us a little, a little bit, but people are very determined right now, the Ukrainian people, very determined to weather the storm, so to speak, literally weather the problem with the winter coming up. This morning on Sky News, uh, they did say that Putin now is anxious to end the war. Hmm. Uh, I don't know why they said that, but uh, if that is the case, and he really wants to end the war, then maybe, maybe that will happen. Uh, but he's already destroyed the country. Well, just uh, between October 10th and 18th, they destroyed 30% of Ukrainian power stations uh, and major damage to the grid and they just keep doing just keep bombing it every day and i think that they also see the ukrainian people are going to dig in their military is very very successful in what it's doing and uh, russia really can't do much unless they either scare people which they have not been successful in doing or actually do the nuclear option which i doubt that they mm. will i've been amazed at how uh, poor the Russian military is. Uh, they, they just don't seem very effective at all. And they've been losing thousands of men and all for nothing. Well, that is the mentality that they have had always throughout history. They've just been an overwhelming force and brute force, and they don't care mm -hmm. what losses they sustain. 
in the war between, of course, the World War II, the German commanders were just astounded when the Russians attacked the Germans at Stalingrad, how the Russian generals disrespected their own men. They just sent them in by the hundreds of thousands, and battle casualties were counted in the hundreds of thousands. Uh, mm -hmm. it, was, it was terrible. The, Germ the, the Russians lost 10 times as many men as the Germans, and it, they didn't seem to care. And right now, even with uh, what's happening with the war in Ukraine, the Russians just a few days ago lost almost 1,000 men in one day. And several days before that, they lost 480 men. And not only that, they don't take them home. They don't pull them off the battlefield. They may, they may dig a, 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 a mass grave for them, but they try to cremate them as quickly as they can because they don't want to leave evidence or uh, any indication of how many people have died. But there's absolutely no respect for men. You know, the military slogan in America, or American military, particularly the Marines, is uh, leave no man behind. Well, the Russians don't care whatsoever. And they've hired or they have recruited so many of these new conscripts, uh, over 200,000 now of the 300,000, and they've already been sending them in to battle, and they're getting slaughtered. It's terrible. There's no training. No. And the equipment that they had, the tanks and all that, some of it was just ancient stuff. And I'm just surprised as to how thin they were. I thought Russia really had a lot more uh, somewhere you know, <laughs> that they had in the woods that they were hiding, but there isn't anything. And I feel that Putin sees that. All he can do is scare people and uh, try to deceive people into making some kind of an agreement. But perhaps you're right, and I hope you're right, that he would sue for some kind of peace and there could be some reprieve from this. Well, I hope so. I'm not absolutely convinced, though, that it's going to go that way. He seems happy to keep his troops there and uh, indefinitely. Well, Russia also has a policy that wherever they put their foot, they're not going to retrieve it. That's just part of their thinking. That was their thinking when they came into Eastern Europe after World War II and created mm -hmm. the Iron Curtain. I mean, we've gotten all this far. We've uh, sacrificed to get all this land, and we're not going to give it up. And it was only when the collapse of the Soviet Union and the rotten communist system that basically imploded on itself that led to the freedom of the European countries like Poland, Hungary, and others. Right. Well, I think uh, it's good to look back at Afghanistan and see how the Russians just made a mess there. And after 10 years, they just upped and left. And all the men that had died, you know, I don't know how many died, but it was just terrible that they should leave after 10 years. And I think this situation in Ukraine is similar to what Afghanistan was. And you could see them leaving at some point when they realize they're not getting very far. Now, it'd be interesting to see if they do leave, what, if they're going to just hang on to the territories they already have, because they've actually lost territory from what they had occupied after the war in 2014. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. But Ukraine needs to have the access to the Black Sea. Ukraine has, uh, is one of the richest agricultural areas in the world, if not the most rich. It produces 10 to 15 times the amount of food that it actually consumes and basically feeds the Middle East. And that's why you have those ships with grain being allowed out because Egypt will starve, and other countries will starve if they don't get the pro products that they have from, from Ukraine. 
and the Russians somehow politically realize that that's necessary to get that out. So it'll be interesting to see how all this works. Melvin, is there anything else that you wanted to uh, comment on? Maybe about Netanyahu? Oh, Netanyahu, he's interesting too. I mean, Israel is interesting. Uh, Netanyahu is the strongest prime minister they've ever had. And he's been in office now for, uh, I think, six times. And now he's won another election. So he'll be in for a seventh period in government. He's just an incredible man, actually, because he, you know, you just feel with Israel that because he's such a strong man, that Israel will survive for so many more years. Whereas a lot of the other people who have been in were rather weak. That the only one who was strong, comparable to Netanyahu, was Golda Meir. Mm-hmm. And that was 50 years ago. I don't know what will happen when Netanyahu goes, but hopefully he's in good health. Well, I, one thing I do like about him is he can understand him. I mean, he speaks English that you can understand. That's true. Uh, and um, he, he is he is strong. Uh, to me, Israel is just uh, truly an amazing place on the earth that I feel like God has just kept kept up uh, because it's the population is small. It's the only place in the Middle East where there is no oil. It's got a government with umpteen parties that are all squabbling with one another, and somehow they're able to hold their own against hundreds of millions. The, the, the government of uh, Israel also contains Muslims within uh, the Knesset. Mm-hmm. In fact, tw- 20% of the people in Israel are Muslims. Mm-hmm. And that always astounds me, because I would have thought that, they, that the Muslims would be a millstone around the government's neck, but it hasn't worked out that way. And in the last government, the Muslims were in an aff- affiliation uh, with the party that was in power. Mm-hmm. That's uh, truly amazing. You know, people on the person-to-person level have one particular orientation and attitude, but then when they get to the political and to the higher level, leadership levels, it turns very bad. Because, for example, Russians and Ukrainians are very good to one another. I have worked in Ukraine, but I've actually worked more in Russia with the different projects over the years. And I have very close relationships with those people. I would say that it's been a little bit subdued here with the war, where they've kind of gotten quiet, and so we don't really talk about things. But me and Russians, and the work that we did with radio and television, Leningrad and St. Petersburg, you know, the relationships were, were excellent, and they were very respectful to me and to other Ukrainians, but you have a situation that's politicized with uh, um, rulership and history and heritage going back to czars and uh, who's going to rule what and who owns what. Uh, it's uh, turned out to be what it is. And a lot of it is economic. A lot of it is, has to do with wealth, like Russia with Ukraine and its uh, agriculture and with nickel and iron ore mines and great wealth. I mean, it's, it's a really a hot spot in the world as far as wealth. And uh, people want that. If the reason for war is James 4. You know, you lust and you don't have. You don't ask properly. Mm-hmm. You don't properly work for it. Well, Melvin, it's just been really great talking to you to kind of just cover some of the uh, various points of interest here, starting with Britain, starting with the British uh, uh, 
current affairs that's happening there and spilling over into uh, Europe and other places. So uh, I always enjoy talking to you. Thank you. We thank you, our listeners, for joining us here today for The Cubic Report. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please share it and tell your friends about it. We can be found on a variety of platforms, including Podbean, which includes information about this podcast, Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Audible, Pocketcaster, and other podcasting platforms. You can easily find us on any browser address bar by simply typing in the words, The Cubic Report, and there we are. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your impressions and suggestions. So write to us at thecubic at gmail.com, V-K-U-B-I-K at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. Come back soon for more.